I'm Marcus Greathart. And I'm David Ball. Welcome to the Addiction Practice Pod. This is a podcast of the BC Centre on Substance Use about approaches to substance use care and treatment. Recorded on the unceded traditional territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. The reach of this work touches all 198 First Nations in British Columbia. I'm a physician, social worker, advocate, and mentor specializing in addiction treatments, social justice and healthcare, and doctor-patient communication. And I'm a journalist with a decade of reporting on substance use, mental health, and public health policies. This is a podcast for healthcare providers focused on issues here in British Columbia. We'll hear from clinicians, policymakers, and people with lived experience on approaches to substance use care that work. Alcohol has been in the news recently, with Canada's guidance for alcohol and health being published. However, when we talk about harm reduction for substance use, alcohol sometimes gets left out of the conversation. I mentioned this has a lot to do with alcohol being a regulated substance and widely socially acceptable. But there is a lot more to providing care to patients with high-risk drinking and alcohol use disorders than just withdrawal management or detox. For people who don't want to, or who are unable to stop drinking, other options do exist along a continuum of care for alcohol use disorder. And one of these options is managed alcohol. Marcus, can you briefly describe what is a managed alcohol program and what does it aim to do? Well, the key idea is that managed alcohol programs, or MAP, reduce the risk associated with heavy drinking and the consumption of non-beverage alcohol without requiring individuals to stop drinking. This is done by providing small doses of alcohol at regular intervals. You mentioned non-beverage alcohol. You're talking about things like mouthwash or rubbing alcohol, right? Yes, exactly. And I'll emphasize that MAPs are not for everyone. It's an option for folks who experience significant harms from their alcohol use. So the clients who we think benefit the most are those consuming non-beverage alcohol, experiencing frequent hospitalizations or withdrawal. Oftentimes, these outcomes are linked to lack of housing and other social factors. We actually touched on this briefly last season during an interview with Dr. Bernie Polly, that some maps also target the social determinants of health that contribute to alcohol use disorder by providing access to housing, primary care, and social and cultural supports. On this episode, we'll hear more about how managed alcohol programs reduce the harms associated with high-risk drinking and what other outcomes they can yield. You can find the articles and resources we discussed during this episode in our show notes. Today, we want to bring you a couple different perspectives. First, we'll hear from someone who is involved in frontline harm reduction work. Brittany Graham is the executive director of the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, VANDU, and has worked in harm reduction and drug policy for over a decade. We're so glad to have you here today, Brittany. To start, can you tell us a bit about what harm reduction looks like in the context of alcohol use? So I think it's a newer field, despite the fact that we've had alcohol legalized in Canada for over 100 years. 
uh, we really think of alcohol harm reduction at more of the system level. So those things like minimum pricing, um, taxation, et cetera, to sort of make people think, oh, this beer is now $8. Do I really need another beer? Um, but that kind of thinking doesn't really work for people who are dependent on alcohol. And there are a lot of people who use alcohol in a dependent way. And for those people, if they stop alcohol very quickly, they can have serious issues in even some cases seizures and even death. So there's a lot of things to be thinking around alcohol harm reduction. And there's a lot of people who think about this in the context of their own lives and create these different modes of how they moderate their alcohol. Um, and so I think that's the place we're in now is like, what does it look like at the individual level? So within the spectrum of harm reduction for alcohol use, our focus for this episode is on managed alcohol programs or what you call MAPs. Can you describe briefly what managed alcohol programs are and kind of what purpose they serve? Sure. Um, so managed alcohol programs are in the broadest sense is somebody being able to access a service or some some person that will help them manage their alcohol. So when you have a lot of alcohol or a lot of money, um, it's sometimes hard to manage the amount of alcohol you're going to be consuming in a day. And so being a part of like a formalized program can allow you to measure your doses throughout the day in sort of a similar way as we do with medicine, um, like penicillin or methadone or something like that, is that you're taking doses to keep you healthy throughout the day because most of these people who are drinking alcohol to that dependent state, if they stop completely, they're likely to have seizures, etc. It allows that person to have a drink once every hour, once every couple hours to allow them to do other things in their life while still continuing to drink. I'm wondering if you could talk about non-beverage alcohol, what that is, and some of the harms of non-beverage alcohol use. Non-beverage alcohol is the things that have alcohol in them that are not for drinking. So if we think about mouthwash, rubbing alcohol, a hand sanitizer, those are the typical things that people would be drinking now. In the past, rice wine was something that was very popular in the Vancouver downtown east side, which is where I'm located. So it's tip it's things that have alcohol in them that you're not supposed to be drinking that can hurt you in other ways. The anecdotal, there's not a ton of evidence around how it affects people in the long term, but anecdotally, there's a lot more memory issues. People get drunker in a different way. People feel it in their body differently. And I've heard quite often that the detox process is much more drastic and severe. So you can have a lot more tremors and seizures, etc. when you're drinking non-beverage alcohol. For people who do use non-beverage alcohol, could you talk a bit about how a managed alcohol program can help reduce the harms that you just talked about? So here I work at the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, and we have a subgroup called the East Side Illicit Drinkers Group for Education. And when we've asked our group why they drink non-beverage alcohol, there's a few people that have an acquired taste for it, but most people it's cost related and more bang for your buck. So for example, when I first started working here 10 years ago, people would drink mostly mouthwash. And now when you ask people what they're drinking non-beverage wise, it would have been rubbing alcohol because the price of mouthwash has actually gone up in the neighborhood. So people have gone to a cheaper 
non-beverage alcohol. And we can see that with actual beverage alcohol as well, is that when it's offered at a reduced cost for this population, it allows them to make the choice for beer or wine, as opposed to mouthwash or rubbing alcohol. And so managed alcohol programs can really be helpful that way. Either they're supplemented, so there's financial supports, or the person's money goes further in in those programs, and they can then purchase beer or wine, sometimes vodka, depending on the program, at a rate that's applicable to the amount that they're drinking, and it allows them to make the decision to not drink non-beverage alcohol. So it, it's quite helpful. Can you walk us through some of the other benefits of the managed alcohol program based on your frontline experiences and the work you're doing at Vandu? I think the thing that we see with alcohol is because it is so prevalent in our society and has, most people have had drinks. Most people have somebody in their life that has an issue with alcohol. Most people have had a couple of drinks and then been able to get to work the next day. So we have all these internal biases that we have towards people who drink. And that comes out in every which way of our lives, whether it's the criminal system, the medical system, housing system. There's a lot of barriers for people who drink alcohol that are unspoken. And so when there's a program that's specifically for people who drink and understands where they're coming from and not only understands them, but also is there to help and give people the space and place to be the person they want to be while drinking alcohol, while reducing their alcohol, or while stopping their alcohol consumption is really rare. For individuals living with alcohol use disorder who may move in and out of treatment and recovery, how do managed alcohol programs fit into the AUD or alcohol use disorder continuum of care? They fit really nicely. I think when we go back to the EDGE group, when we ask them questions as to why people are going to detox, the things that we hear is that people are looking to reduce their alcohol. People are looking to take a break. They've heard that it's good for their brain and for their liver to take a break, but they want to do it in a supervised fashion. And if we see that as part of the system that allows that person to move into that next step. So they're not going to recovery treatment programs currently to actually stop completely. They're going to like bring themselves from drinking at 20 to 40 drinks a day to much lower than that. And if we're going to support that person needs to be able to go to managed alcohol programs after the fact, be able to access alcohol after the fact so that they can keep that lower level of drinking that they are looking for, which actually might be very, much better for their system. If they're going from 40 standard units of alcohol a day and it's illicit alcohol, so rubbing alcohol or mouthwash to 20 units a day of 5% beer, that's a huge change for their body and could really make a difference for that person. It's definitely a really important part of that spectrum of care for the AUD treatment. Do managed alcohol programs have like wraparound services like food, supportive housing? And could you talk about the importance of that? Yeah, so I think managed alcohol programs have exist across the province or province and across the country now, and almost all of them were created for the population that they saw. So like people weren't able to get into shelter, they weren't able to go into housing, whatever it was, and people were usually dying of exposure because they weren't allowed to bring their alcohol or be under the influence in their shelters. And so those were the most 
regional managed alcohol programs that existed. That's the story of Toronto's managed alcohol program. But I think as they're creating these programs around the alcohol, you start to see the other things that people need. So they need supports like housing, they need counseling or culture services, there's food services, etc. Each map has a slightly different way of how they run, but in a similar place where they're looking at the person first, what does this population need in this specific area, and trying to adapt to that. Could you talk about the importance of those social factors you just discussed when you're trying to actually reduce the harms of alcohol use? So here at Vandu and Edge, we don't really have any of that stuff. We have an advocacy group of people who use alcohol. And we've seen that like when people are deeply involved in stuff, when there's community, when they're working on something that they're interested in, there is like a natural reduction of alcohol use because there's something that's driving that person elsewhere, whether it's the actual cause, the advocacy, the community, whatever. And so those are the types of things that we see in managed alcohol programs as well. So when you're living with other people that look like you and have experiences like you, you're able to relate and have that community again. When you have food services, you don't have to be as worried about things. And then you actually don't have to like spend, like the money thing is like a huge thing. If we think about like welfare or disability, when people have 700 to $900 a month for all of their expenses and alcohol is something they're dependent on and they actually need that to live, the food, the fun things, they go out the window really quickly. And so when you have access to safer places where you can get alcohol, where you can get better food, et cetera, all those things help that person see more opportunity in their life than they saw before. Brittany, could you describe in brief what a typical managed alcohol program would look like for a client? For each person, it would be different. But when you go into a managed alcohol program, usually you're being referred by another healthcare service. So like a social worker, a nurse, a doctor, whoever. And those people would then get you to be a part of this program. There's usually wait lists, et cetera. So by the time you get into this thing, you're doing like intakes, trying to figure out where you are now. So... They ask a lot of detailed questions because people really don't understand what a standard unit of alcohol looks like. So there's a lot of questions of, is it this much beer? Is it this much shots? Is it this much this? And then they do an assessment of what someone is drinking on a daily or weekly basis to figure out what their current rate is at and where their titration needs to be. Once they know the amount that people have, they have a standard unit of alcohol that they typically give throughout the day. It's all dependent on the programs, but there's usually a schedule that person then sticks to. And then from there, it's like figuring out what the person's goals are. Is it like, I just want to keep drinking at the level I'm drinking at and I want to live in a nice place and not be able to like possibly die on the street every night? That's a goal. That person can have that goal. If a person goes into it and says, I really want to drink less and I want to go back to school or I want to connect with my family or whatever it is, get in my own apartment or whatever. Those are like long-term goals. So like then you would work with that person to figure out what that alcohol titration would look like. And those are things that you would go back to on a regular basis with that person. And because, you know, people's goals change as they move 
through life. Well, that's really fascinating, Brittany. For care providers listening to the podcast who are interested in learning more about alcohol harm reduction, do you have any resources you'd recommend or places to, to look at? I would connect with the EDGE team here at Vandu. So if you just email vandu at vandu.org, we can send you the stuff that we have. But we have an alcohol strategy for the city. The individual person wants to make changes in their life. Like they want to go to treatment because they want to reduce their alcohol consumption. They want to go to treatment because they want to reconnect with their family. They want to go to treatment because they want complete sober life. There's a bunch of different reasons, but getting into those services is really difficult. It is impossibly hard to go through that system. And I think when people are service providers, specifically like doctors and nurses, there is this inherent bias towards people who use alcohol. Practitioners should have more empathy towards their clients that are coming in because they're really trying, but the system is not built for people to get through it or to even be able to access things. It sounds like there's a really important role for frontline providers then in terms of just listening and supporting, but also advocacy in terms of getting what their patients need and is most effective and realistic for them. Yeah. And I think it's like bringing it to the next level. So for example, like with managed alcohol programs, like they're still in their infancy. There's like probably about 40 or so across the country, but like they bring people into very specific spaces, but not necessarily grow with that person in their life. So if someone's 25 and they've been drinking for 10 years already, 15 years already, and they actually fit all the categories of managed alcohol program, they should be able to access that service. But should they be in that service for the next 60 years of their life? That seems like a lot. Maybe we need to be thinking about what that transition looks like for that person. Or on the other side of it, palliative care is something that is desperately needed for people who use alcohol. And a lot of palliative places, long-term care facilities don't accept people with alcohol use disorders. And so where do these people go? They need a version of a managed alcohol program in those care facilities. And so it's up to like individual practitioners right now to notice this and push for change. And because the medical system doesn't really talk about alcohol harm reduction very much anyway, it's one of those things that if more and more practitioners start talking about this, the more services we will hopefully have for people who use alcohol because there needs to be that continuum of care even in managed alcohol programs. That was Brittany Graham, Executive Director of the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users. Next, we want to hear about managed alcohol programs from someone with lived experience. George Sador is a leader in the Eastside Illicit Drinkers Group for Education, or EDGE. He's also a member of the Portland Hotel Society Community Managed Alcohol Program, known as the Drinkers Lounge. So, my name is George Clarence Joseph Sador, and I was born in Newfoundland. I grew up drinking. I, my grandfather would put whiskey on my gums when I was teething, and my uncles would take me fishing when I was eight years old and like, here, have a beer. When I first came here, I had, I had money, so it was okay. But I didn't, I've never been to Vancouver before, so I really didn't check into many things. I was actually having a hard time finding, making friends here. 
I found Hope to Health the clinic, so I started going there because I know I drink a lot, so I go there and I got a doctor, which is good. And so she's always checking on me like every three months, whole lot of blood work, everything. And so they introduced me to the Drinker's Lounge. At first, when we met, she asked me a bunch of questions. Am I an alcoholic? And I'm like, I don't think so. What is an alcoholic? Okay, I drink. So am I an alcoholic? <laughs> so I'm like, I have no idea what you mean. <laughs> I've been drinking all my life. So I'm like, just seems normal. I would never consider myself an alcoholic. So I came up with my own concept. So I came up with the idea that I'm a functional alcoholic. <laughs> so I drink every day, but not to the point where I'm drunk, just throughout the day. And so she's trying to help me reduce my alcohol. You want to go to AA? What is AA? <laughs> How about detox? Detox. So that was one question. I'm like, what is detox? Well, you go to this place, you get some meals you can't drink. No. <laughs> I just go, if I want to do that, I'll just go to the mountains. <laughs> you got a lot of mountains here. <laughs> and also I was talking to her about like socializing and stuff. So it's like, I know a place for you to go. I'm like, I'm not going to AA. <laughs> I don't want to stop. I want to reduce, but I'm not going to stop. It's like, I understand. I had no idea about it. And she spoke. I think you would like this place. She took me to the drinker's lounge. She literally walked me there and talked to the staff and introduced me to the staff. And I'm like, okay, this works. All right, why not? And I'm still there. <laughs> I've been there for about two years now. So it's really good. It, it helps. The drinker's lounge is basically, it's like an alcohol harm reduction site. So we're given a certain amount of alcohol throughout the day. No al hard alcohol, no hard drugs. Uh, you can smoke weed outside, of course. Or... And it's basically, as I feel, it's a really good place where people can come together and socialize. The workers are very good, and they also help like with housing. There's also a nurse that comes in all the time. We also have a lot of meetings, like men's group, a women's group and barbecues. I think the social aspect of it is very important. And also the fact that it is an alcohol management program. So it, I believe it reduces like your intake of alcohol throughout the day. And because of the social aspect, like people can come together, chit chat, talk about things in their lives. And we also have like movies, we have barbecues, like I said before, and we have like events and some games. And so I think like it really does help people in this situation where it's difficult, especially downtown east side Vancouver, and to socialize, get off like heavy drugs and also alcohol, like rubbing alcohol. I've heard people drinking Listerine or stuff like that because you can get alcohol there, very cheap price. And so I think that helps people. And then with the corresponding with other people and socializing, it also reduces the harm of alcohol or drug use. 
before I was drinking like a 26 or a vodka every day, but I've actually really cut down on my alcohol. But I still drink every day, but like I pay like $165 a month and I get two liters of wine, but now cut it down to one. At first it was 165 for two liters, but now I'm at one liter. So of course it's half that price. So I'm saving money and my doctor's happy. <laughs> my liver is happy. I sit there and just like talk to the other members and slowly drink my wine. And I don't really feel like getting wasted. I can actually manage how much I drink throughout the day, which is great. Like, I don't have seizures. I still see my doctor. And so they do have a few snacks there. Lunches are every, from Monday to Friday, we have lunches. So I'm also trying to, because we're open seven days a week, so I'm trying to incorporate uh, Saturdays and Sundays too. That way, at least on the weekends, we can have lunch as well. Here at Vandu, I'm on the steering committee for EDGE. So we talk about the situations downtown, like alcoholics, how they're being mistreated, and we're trying to find solutions to help people. And we're trying to work on a sobering center. So instead of having alcoholics thrown into a drunk tank, taken to a sobering center, same idea, like 25 milliliters every hour, whatever they need, but not get drunk and sober up without being a drunk tank. Because <laughs> I've heard a lot of bad words about drunk tanks. <laughs> I've never been, don't want to go. <laughs> so we're trying to work on that. Of course, now cannabis is legal, so that's great. I do smoke at night. So basically, for myself, like, I totally forget about my wine. It's really great because, like, now in the mornings, like, I don't wake up with that hangover or, like, a headache. and just wake up and I'm like, <laughs> I forgot to drink. <laughs> For healthcare providers, I think the information that we're coming up with, I think it should be a guideline for them to follow. Because I've been to many places and talked to people and they're like, I don't know. I'm like, what? Like, I have a book that we made here on alcohol solutions. And they have no idea. Everyone has a, a different way to cope with alcohol or how they deal with it. And this should all be put together. And doctors should, or clinics should have a, like a, read up about it. That was George Sidor. He's a leader in the East Side Illicit Drinkers Group for Education, or EDGE. So in today's episode, we've heard from public health and policy perspective, and from someone who participates in a managed alcohol program. Marcus, can you share some of the clinical pearls you take from this episode? Sure, David. Managed alcohol programs aim to reduce the risk of harms associated with heavy drinking without requiring clients to stop or reduce their drinking. 
Some programs are also paired with shelters or housing programs to provide a safer and more inclusive alternative to abstinence-based housing. Some of the goals of managed alcohol programs are to support wellness, avoid withdrawal, reduce or eliminate non-beverage alcohol consumption, and promote safer use through harm reduction education. Other important impacts include improving access to food, accommodation, and primary care. We also learned from George Sador that managed alcohol programs can bring people together and provide a sense of community for individuals looking to reduce the harms associated with their alcohol use. As a healthcare provider, it's important that we listen to our patients' goals around their alcohol use. For patients who are not interested in reducing or stopping their drinking, understand that this could be for a multitude of reasons. Having a conversation about managed alcohol programs can support your patient's wellness and show them that you respect their goals. Lastly, managed alcohol programs function as a key point of access for other health and social services and treatment for alcohol use disorder. Individuals in a managed alcohol program can be supported by clinicians to move along the alcohol use disorder continuum of care as their goals and drinking behaviors change. Thank you so much to our guests today, George Sador and Brittany Graham. The BC Centre on Substance Use has a resource called Operational Guidance for Implementation of Managed Alcohol for Vulnerable Populations, which was published in 2020. You can also keep an eye out for the forthcoming Managed Alcohol Program's National Operation Guidance, which will be published by CRISM. We've included links to current operational guidance, relevant articles, and research led by the Eastside Illicit Drinkers Group for Education in the show notes, where you can also find instructions for claiming CME self-learning credits. Help us to create the best possible podcast by filling out our short survey. Just click the link to it in the show notes. This has been a production of the BC Centre on Substance Use. And this podcast was made possible through a financial contribution from Doctors of BC, with support from BC's Ministry of Health and Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions, and founding support from Health Canada. The views expressed here do not necessarily represent the views of those organizations. I'm Marcus Greathart. And I'm David Ball. Thank you so much for listening.